Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 92, archived edition. Today's guest is Dr. Kara Uwe. Sleep impacts every aspect of our life. So many people struggle with trying to get a great night's sleep. That's why I asked today's guest, Dr. Kara Uwe, to join us. Kara Uwe is a sleep specialist and child psychiatrist from Toronto, Canada. Kara joins us to give us a bunch of amazing tips and strategies to help us get a great night's sleep. Dr. Uri discusses how sleep impacts every aspect of our life, from anxiety and depression to physical ailments. A bad night's sleep makes everything worse. Dr. Uri likes to say the worst version of us is usually found when we are sleep deprived and exhausted. Dr. Uwe drops some great sleep knowledge that anyone can benefit from, so I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button or share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come, including episode number 100, where we will be joined by international best-selling author Seth Godin who's making his return appearance to the show. Stay tuned for that one. Until then, enjoy my conversation with sleep specialist, Dr. Kara Uwe. And remember, life is built, not born. Dr. Kara Uwe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. For the listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? I am a medical doctor. I do a couple of types of medicine. So I trained in general psychiatry and then did training in child and adolescent psychiatry. And then towards the end of my training, I actually discovered sleep medicine and did then an additional fellowship in sleep medicine. So now I actually primarily do sleep medicine in both teens and adults. And then I also work with teens specifically doing a type of treatment or a modified version of a type of treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Ottawa, Canada, which is the capital of Canada. I did my training in London, Ontario at Western University, and then I did my residency training in Toronto. What made you decide to be a physician? How early in your life could you look back and say, that's the moment I decided to become a doctor? It was interesting because I just in listening to a couple of your episodes, the physician part was more born than built. I come from a family of doctors. Both my parents are doctors. My older sister is a doctor. It was not necessarily what I wanted to do when I was a kid. But I think as I got into my undergrad, my early university years, becoming a doctor, I don't want to say that it was easy, but I was afforded a lot of advantages because I had people in my family from medicine. If you ask people who know me, it's not that much of a stretch for me to have become a doctor. It um, fit well with the things that came naturally to me. I think the things that have not come naturally to me are things like making a podcast and putting myself and having these types of conversations in a very public forum, creating things that might fail. I think that's the type of stuff where I've really had to build those skills and I've had to really push myself and be very uncomfortable to do that kind of stuff. I now feel like the work that I'm doing is so much more, it just fuels me so much more. I'm so excited about creating these resources and creating the podcast and and putting together programs and education and, and things like that. That is stuff that did not come naturally to me. 
me. And so I feel like my kind of built not born story started after I became a doctor, <laughs> started exploring some of this other stuff that I just wasn't necessarily a natural at, but just loved to do. When you go to med school, how did you land on psychiatry of all the different spe- subspecialties? How, how did you land there? Yeah, so it's really interesting. I did not ever think I would be a psychiatrist. I had done my, in our third year, we do our clerkship, which is when we rotate through all the different specialties. And I actually really disliked my psychiatry rotation. It wasn't until, and I think it's because part of me like efficiency and I like to move quickly. I'm impatient, which is funny because I'm a psychiatrist, but I think it just was in such contrast to the other specialties where things are much faster paced. You can Things are more concrete in a lot of ways. You can see change faster. But it wasn't until I was in my fourth year when we have the opportunity to do electives and whatever we want to do, I actually thought I was going to be a pediatrician. So I did a bunch of different rotations in pediatrics, and I had to choose something other than pediatrics as one of my rotations. So I did a child psychiatry elective, and I just fell in love with it. I just I loved having conversations, and I loved... I I just love the work. I thought it was really valuable, really important work. And so I pivoted in my last year and and applied to psychiatry. How do you go from child psychiatry, then subspecialty into sleep medicine? How does that come about? Yeah, so that was another pivot. I think I was in my second to last year of training. So for residency, I did four years of general psychiatry training. And then my last two years, so two years after that in child and adolescent psychiatry, it was in my fifth year when I attended a lecture in sleep. And I just, I also just loved it. I think, although I really, I think psychiatry is a great field. There was a lot of ambivalence that I think my just, my natural tendency didn't always sit well with where, and sleep medicine was this very concrete field. We had tests that we could order. And, and I just also found sleep to be fascinating. I found the interface between sleep and psychiatry to be really interesting. How much sleep disorders can look like psychiatric disorders, how much of what we see in psychiatry also involves sleep, how sleep affects how people can get better from psychiatric disorders, the medications and how they interact between the two specialties. I just, I loved it. And so I did more training in it and thought I would just do it as a kind of a side thing to psychiatry, but then I ultimately ended up doing a fellowship and then started shifting my practice more to, towards doing general sleep medicine as I just realized that it was, I think, a better fit for me in a lot of ways and as I really wanted to start carving out more of the work that I do with teens and insomnia. I love the tagline following up what you said, where some of the, the psychological disorders come from lack of sleep or sleep problems. Your new podcast, which I really love, Find the Eight. I think the tagline is, it's hard to change anything else in your life if you are sleep deprived and exhausted. Mm-hmm. It's, I remember from having young kids to in college, staying up too late to whatever the reason now that you, you just don't have a good night's sleep. And it's just, it's so hard to be on your A game in any part of your life if the sleep is out of line. Like everything else can be in line, but if the sleep's not in line, you can't work out sleep. You could go to the gym 10 times a week. If you're not sleeping, the whole thing crumbles. Does does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think whenever I've been at the worst version of myself, I'm always sleep deprived. And I, I also remember having young kids and just how much it impacted how I could think and what I could do and my habits and all of that. So yes, I really see it as this foundational piece that a lot of people are are missing. And although it seems like this kind of adjacent thing to what we do in psychiatry, I actually think it's really fundamental. Here's a big question. I think we could base the rest of our conversation off of this. From your experience, why is it so hard for the average person to get a good night's sleep? 
There's so many factors, but I think I always say this, that the world is just not set up to sleep well. So if we think about the really big things that keep us awake, I like to divide them into two main things. So part of it, and you may have heard of this in the first episode where I talk about one of the main issues sometimes that people fall into or the traps that people fall into is that people are just trying to sleep at a time when their body isn't able to sleep. So that has to do with having enough time to build up biological drive for sleep. It also has to do with the timing of your body clock. So if we just think about those things, one of the main issues, especially that we see in teens, is that the clock is shifted back. And a lot of that has to do with when we get light and then also the timing of when we wake up. So the timing of sleep. When we get light is so influenced now by our our modern lives because we have artificial lights, because we have screens that we're on all of the time. And then particularly for teens, but I think this can happen for adults as well, teens have this kind of mismatch between their clock because they tend to run later. The clock tends to run later and that clashes with when school starts. So that sets people up then to sleep in on the weekends and nap. And then that really fuels this issue of not being able to sleep at the right time. And then you have all the other things that impact um, our ability to essentially unwind and be able to get into that state that's really good for sleep. So the world is a really stressful place right now. There's a lot going on. We have constant inputs and we can always be getting this stuff from the internet, which is obviously stuff on the internet and social media is very designed to be addictive and to drive you in. There's a lot of factors that make it really difficult both to be ready for sleep at the same time and then also to be able to power down properly for sleep. Could you speak to the timing of sleep or setting up a sleep routine? School is not set up with their bio clock. So they wake up too early and that makes them go to bed too late. And on the weekends, you find while catch up and they sleep in. And then you do something five days a week with school, but then the other two days you're waking up four hours later. Can you speak to how that may mess up someone's ability to get quality sleep? Sure. Yeah. So that's an extremely common pattern, especially in teens, because of that setup that you mentioned, the mismatch between when their body clocks want to be sleeping and when they have to get up for things like school. So it makes sense to, if you're exhausted, you've maybe only been able to get five, six hours on weekdays to then try to catch up on the weekends or to nap after school. And it makes sense on one hand because you are getting, you are repowering a little bit by getting more sleep, but there's a downside that a lot of people don't know about. And that has to do with shifting the clock later. So when you sleep in on the weekends, your clock essentially gets the message that it's time to shift later. Just if we were to travel, if we were to go back three time zones, four time zones, the clock would get the message to shift later. So what happens is that the clock shifts a bit later on the weekend and then Sunday night rolls around and it's even harder to get to bed on time. It just fuels this really vicious cycle where a lot of teens, and this happens to adults uh, as well, get just increasingly sleep deprived. And that tends to happen, I find, October, November, once that hits, things you're okay in September because you can deal with the sleep deprivation for a shorter period of time. But after that sleep debt builds up, it becomes more and more of a problem. How much does screen time affect quality of sleep and also timing of screen time? From your clinical experience, say a teen wanted to go to sleep, let's say 10 o'clock at night. How far before you shut down do you recommend shutting off the devices? So this one's obviously a really tricky one. And I like to break it down into the kind of two major impacts of screens. So one of them has to do with light. And the other one has to do with the fact that what we're doing online is engaging. So the light piece is harmful because essentially light that we're getting from screens, in particular the blue light that we're getting from screens, 
suppresses our body's ability to make melatonin. And what normally happens, say if you were camping or you were somewhere where there where you were just getting natural sunlight cues, what would normally happen is that the sun would start to go down. You would have kind of dimmer light conditions, maybe at 6 or 7 p.m. And then three, four, five hours later, that's when sleep would be triggered. So melatonin actually has to build up a few hours or three to five hours before sleep gets triggered. And so in an ideal world, if it was easy to weigh electronics, I would recommend to people that if they wanted to go to bed at 10, that they would cut off their screens at 7 p.m. Now, I don't know any teen or any adult who's <laughs> able to do that. So that's where then you have to just think about more of a harm reduction approach. So there's a whole bunch of ways that you can at least start to reduce the amount of light that you're getting starting from really low-hanging low fruit. Like some people just don't even know this. They think that if they cut off screens at 10, that then they should be able to sleep after that. But you really need that buffer time where light is coming down. So low-hanging fruit would be just turning off unnecessary lights or dimming lights that are super, super bright. The LED lights that we use, which are great for uh, the environment, are just unfortunately not so good because they contain a lot of that blue light. So there are things like that. And then you can also, of course, get filters on all of your screens to block up the blue light. And then you can go even more extreme. If you see my household in the evening, we're all wearing the amber tinted blue light blocking glasses. I only let my kids use these little amber tinted lights. I'm quite extreme about it just because I know for myself, my sleep is so impacted. And my kids, I think, too, are so impacted when they get more light. So it's, and I think it's important for people to know that it's not just being able to fall asleep, it's also quality of sleep. So it can really impact your, your sleep quality. I love to see the picture of everyone walking around with the amber tinted glasses, all almost like little U2 fans, like little Bonos walking around. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned quality sleep. How many hours do you think the average teen needs and also the average adult needs and how and when does that change? Yeah, I, I encourage people not to think so much about a number and more about what they need to feel rested. So if you look at the guidelines for teens, it's between eight and 10 hours. Most teens need really nine to nine and a half hours. And whenever I say that, nobody gets that, <laughs> or the vast majority don't get that. There was a study that showed over 70% get less than seven hours of sleep. And this is for teens. For adults, it's between six and nine, and that's a recommended amount. There are some people who can be below that or above that, but that tends to be less common. But again, it's more about finding the amount of sleep that that you feel rested, that you're able to be productive, and you're not feeling tired and, and sleepy generally during the day. You mentioned lighting is very important and the timing of lighting. Here's one thing that I struggle with where I, I like to read before I go to bed, but the light, my bedroom light is bright, a bright LED light that, so I can read in my bed. So I feel like the reading is helping me go to sleep, but the light's so bright, I feel sometimes that stims me. I even noticed that before listening to your podcast, the brighter the room is, it's almost like a caffeine jolt for a couple of minutes where it's so mm -hmm. bright. Even after I shut the light off, I still have some stim. What do you recommend for someone who wants to read before they go to bed, but not have so much light where it changes up their sleep cycle? Yeah. So this is where I would recommend those little amber tinted reading lights that I, I mentioned to you. You can get them. They're not expensive. I think they're maybe about $15, $20. I order, I order them off of Amazon. They just, they emit a much dimmer and it's an amber tinted light. And those are good both for reading before bed, but also in the middle of the night, if you wake up and you can't sleep and you want to do something else to allow yourself to get sleepy, you also don't want to be turning on those bright lights in the middle of the night because they're going to alert you. The other thing I was going to mention, for my bedside light, if I don't want to use this little amber tinted light, I have a light bulb that emits less of the blue light. 
It's just a, it's a regular um, light bulb that you can plug into any regular okay. lamp. I'll jump ahead a little bit of my questions. I was asking my friends, have kids, what sleep questions you have. There's quite a few people that said they go to bed 10, 11 o'clock at night and they fall asleep really hard till two, three in the morning and they are up. They just mm-hmm. wake up and they're staring at the ceiling and it's way too early at 3 a.m. to start the day. But if they get up and walk downstairs, they're even more up. The side effects of sitting in bed, staring at the ceiling compared to waking yeah. up, going downstairs. Can you speak to that? Yeah, sure. And first of all, I should mention that's a really common pattern. So normally by the middle of the night, you've exhausted. So what happens when we're awake is that we build up drive for sleep. And whenever we sleep, that comes down. So by the middle of the night, you've depleted that drive to a certain extent. And normally what happens is in the second half of the night, your circadian rhythm signals kick in. So you then go into a period where the clock is pushing out a lot of sleepiness signals. And so there's that little area or that kind of middle of the night portion where people tend to be more likely to wake up. There's actually an interesting book, and I'm forgetting it right now, where people used to sleep in that way. They would sleep for the first half of the night. They'd get up in the middle of the night. They'd go visit with their neighbors for a couple of hours, do other things. And then they'd go back for that second part of the night. And that worked out probably, I'm guessing, because they could fall asleep earlier because they probably didn't have artificial light and stuff like that. But so in terms of what happens in the middle of the night, so this is where you want to set yourself up ahead of time. Absolutely. You don't necessarily want to be turning on all the lights. You don't want to be doing things that are really stimulating because it's going to be really difficult to fall back asleep. You don't want to go on your phone, which is really tempting, but you also don't want to lie there and just ruminate because that tends to make things worse. And what can often happen is actually if you spend a lot of that time awake in bed in that state of thinking a lot and feeling tense, it can actually perpetuate or continue or uh, fuel the issue further. So this is where, where it's helpful to set up a spot where you can go, where you can have stuff to do that's not too stimulating. Maybe you have a good book that you like to read when you have insomnia, a book that you read before that you don't have to stay up to to know the end of the story, and you have some kind of dim, dim light conditions. And it's actually just get better to get out of bed and do that. And then wait until you feel sleepy. And sometimes you won't ever feel sleepy, in which case the best next step is just to get up and start your day after a certain amount of time. But it might be that you do get sleepy again, in which case if you get out of bed, you're more likely to feel sleepy because you're not lying in bed, ruminating, worrying about sleep, things like that. Let's speak of caffeine for teens and adults and alcohol for the college crowd. How much does caffeine and alcohol affect quality sleep? And how would you time each? If you could speak to that. Sure. Yeah. So these things affect people differently. For caffeine, caffeine can stick around in the body for about 14 hours. And so there are some people who can fall asleep with caffeine in their system. Some people are just less sensitive to it. But it's important to know that even if you can fall asleep with caffeine in your system, it can really impact the quality of your sleep. So typically, if I'm meeting with people who have insomnia, I recommend just cut it off after noon at the latest. Ideally, just have it one in the morning is probably best practice. And then for alcohol, has alcohol and and cannabis are tricky because people will often find that they help with falling asleep. But especially with chronic use, you get a more disrupted sleep. And so you have, it has to do with kind of for cannabis, the metabolites, but essentially you get more of a light broken sleep. And so I often will mention this and caution people about, especially when it becomes more chronic, that this could be a very powerful reason why they're not sleeping well. How about the power of sleep and the ability for teenagers to learn? What have you seen from your clinical experience about sleep and the ability to perform well in school? 
Yeah, it definitely impacts the ability to focus. I would say probably the number one complaint that I get from a lot of the teens that I meet with is they just can't focus. So what's often happening with teens is not only are they sleep deprived for all the reasons that we've talked about, but oftentimes people or teens are in school when they're right in the period when their body clock thinks they should be sleeping. And so a very common thing that I'll hear is that people are just, they're just completely out of it until maybe 11 or 12 or even later. And they're spending all their energy just trying to stay awake. So oftentimes people aren't really able to listen or focus, retain things. It can have a really big impact on learning. Absolutely. How much does room temperature affect quality of sleep? It could definitely impact it. I think the recommendation is between 18 and 19 degrees Fahrenheit, but it certainly can impact it, your sleep if it's too hot, too cold. So it's a that's an easy fix, I find. That's something that oftentimes you just have to fix once and then it can have a big impact. You mentioned that when the light starts to dim later in the day, melatonin starts to build, which helps sleep. What are your thoughts on melatonin supplements? What have you found the effectiveness of them? So melatonin is something that's very widely used as a sedative. So oftentimes people are taking it at doses of three, five, sometimes 10, 20, I'll see milligrams just before bed as a way of helping them get sleepy and settle to bed. And anecdotally, it does sometimes help. However, if you look at the studies, it's not a very good sedative. It's really much better used the way that it functions naturally, which is as a time setter. So I don't ever recommend melatonin as a sedative. I will sometimes have people come to me and they're already on it and they've found it to be helpful, in which case I don't tell them to go off of it. I think it's okay. But I think there are some downsides to melatonin that a lot of people aren't aware of. So it's a hormone, at least in Canada, where I live, it's not regulated. And so there's a lot of variability in terms of the different brands. And because it is a hormone, it's not benign the way that a lot of people think it is. So it does have impacts on the immune system, on the reproductive system. Studies that they've done in kids show generally it's safe and over the study was run over two years, but we don't know about the long-term effects. So a lot of people just take it without uh, any concern about harm. And I, I often just try to balance that out a little bit and explain to people that it's not completely benign. We don't know that it's completely benign. A few people I was speaking with, I asked them, why can't they go to bed or what stops them from getting good quality sleep? And multiple people mentioned that they have so much in their head. There's so much they need to do. There's so much they didn't get done during the day. There's so many responsibilities, their kids, their job, their school, their grades. I saw on one of your podcasts, you mentioned about having a list where you write everything down. Could you speak to that where the, the power of just writing everything down before you go to bed, how that may give you better sleep? Sure. And just to pause, there was a little bit I wanted to add to that melatonin piece. That's great. Oh, sure. So the way in which I will sometimes use melatonin in a clinical setting is I will use it as a time setter. So it can work, for example, a teen who's on a very delayed schedule. Once they've done some of the other strategies, I'll sometimes incorporate a bit of low-dose melatonin, but that's at a much lower dose, typically less than one milligram. And that would be timed in a similar way to when melatonin starts to rise naturally in the body. So more like three, four, five hours beforehand. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of it's a way of of helping to potentially shift the clock a bit earlier. Now, having said that, I don't use it in everybody. You have to get onto a fairly regular schedule and you need to be um, addressing a lot of the other things that can be driving insomnia and uh, other sleep issues before it's gonna work, but sometimes it can be helpful. So the take one of the takeaways I'm hearing, just to so I, I hear you correctly. That person who thinks that 
I can just take some melatonin every day, like it's a multivitamin so I could sleep better. That is not a good long-term strategy. I think it, you have to weigh the risks and benefits. If this person is getting tremendous benefit in terms of being able to sleep, then I think it's okay. I don't, like I said, I don't recommend it. It's not a medical recommendation that I make, but I think that person just needs to understand the potential downsides. And if they're willing to accept those downsides, then that's fine. But I think it's just often that people aren't aware of, of the potential risks and, and downsides of taking melatonin. Could you speak to the power of just writing down your thoughts and what's bouncing around in your head right before you go to bed to, to help establish maybe a, a better sleep schedule? Sure. So it's really common that people have active minds at bedtime for a few different reasons. I think bedtime is often when we finally have some quiet. We're not distracted by everything that we that usually distracts us during the day. And so that's when oftentimes we tend to get hit by all the stuff we need to do, worries, stuff we haven't figured out yet. And so oftentimes it can be very helpful just to externalize that stuff. So there's a book I really, I don't know if you know the book, Getting Things Done by David Allen. It's yep. a productivity book. Sure. So this is actually the first step of what he does to help people get organized is he gets people to write down everything that's on their mind. Because when you've got these open loops, so this unfinished business floating around in your head, it's very difficult for your mind to settle. So sometimes just clearing that stuff out by quickly getting it down on a piece of paper can bring you some of that short-term relief and help you to relax and to get into that state for good sleep. There's something magical about writing your thoughts down, like journaling or just to write it down. It's like it, you have two friends that are speaking about a problem. You're, you're the third person and you can find a solution or a better way because you're not emotionally attached to it. When mm -hmm. you, you write it down, that almost gives you that ability. Like you stepped off the line of, of travel and you could see it and you're like, okay, it's not that bad. Or okay, yeah. once it's you take it from bouncing around in your head and you put it on paper, to me, it just settles everything down. That's mm -hmm. such, a, such a helpful thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that distance is a really great point. Just that putting it in concrete form and having a bit of distance from your thoughts that you are not your thoughts and you're not necessarily your emotions. You can have a bit more perspective. I think the other quick thing I'll just mention here is that I, it's really common though, when, when I recommend that to people for that to be it, there can be a, a downside to it where people will start to write things down and then it opens up a whole can of worms for them. So I think it's really important that if people are going to use that strategy, the idea is just to quickly capture stuff. You can do a bigger capture or you can you know, write down a bigger mind sweep or it's often called mind sweep during the day. But at nighttime, you don't want to be digging into trying to problem solve. You don't want to be digging into necessarily making big decisions at that time. Oftentimes, we're not able to really problem solve at those times anyways, because we're typically tired or we might be stressed out about getting to sleep. And so it's better just to put a little placeholder, get that stuff down, and then process it the following day. Warren Buffett has a thing called the Warren Buffett rule, where he says, write everything you think you need to do, all your priorities down from one to 50. Get to the point where you're like, there's nothing left for me to do. If I finish this list, then you decide what one, two, and three is. Only you can decide mm -hmm. that. And everything from one to three becomes your to-do list and four down goes in the garbage until it's their mm -hmm. time. Even Warren Buffett used something like that to clear his head. You mentioned two of your rules I want to speak to. Could you describe your two-minute rule and how that can give you a sense of accomplishment and build up some sleep momentum? Sure. I, that's not my rule. I think I that actually is, I've heard that in different places, but pretty sure David Allen uses that as well in terms of being able to 
get started on taking action. So the way that I talk about it in that episode is there's a few different ways in which the two-minute rule is really helpful. So one of them can be that you've got a whole bunch of stuff to do. So say you're sitting down beginning of the day or sitting down before a study session and you've got, it seems like hundreds of things to do. It can be helpful just to get all that stuff down really quickly on a piece of paper without giving it too much thought and then going over and seeing if there's any stuff that you can just knock off really quickly. So maybe it's sending a quick text or email. Maybe it might be jotting down a really quick list or another brainstorm for an idea that you have. And the idea is that if you get these little two-minute things done and out of the way, you've got that momentum. And it makes the rest of the stuff a little bit more doable. It's like that early quick win can be really helpful and motivating. So that's one way in which it's really helpful. Another way is when you've got a big daunting thing or it feels really daunting, it can be helpful just to tell yourself, I'm just going to do this for two minutes. And then allow yourself or give yourself the permission at the two-minute mark to say, okay, I, I'm not feeling it today. I'm, I'm going to put this away for today. Or oftentimes, once you get started, once you have a little bit of momentum and you've overcome that inertia, it's not so bad to keep on going. So I do this with working out. For example, if I have a day when I just really don't feel like working out, I will tell myself, I'm just going to work out for five minutes today and see how I feel at that point. Because oftentimes you feel quite different after you get started. And then the last way has to do with... If you've got a bigger project, something that's going to take multiple steps, oftentimes it's difficult to get started on that project because you're maybe thinking at about step five or step six. Mm -hmm. And what you need to be thinking about is just step one. And oftentimes, if you can pinpoint what that first step is, again, you get the ball rolling and then you get to action. So for example, I use, for example, in the podcast, I'll often recommend things that are going to take a few steps or that you're going to need to work on and then maybe go back and iterate or improve, like setting up that separate spot so you have somewhere else to be other than your room. But if you can just get the ball rolling with the first step, which might be for a teen, it might be texting their parent and saying, hey, I want to set up a you know, comfortable spot in my room. Can you help me? That takes no energy. And that at least then gets things moving because oftentimes we just don't do a lot of things because there is so much resistance to getting started. You mentioned showing up every day just for a few minutes where sometimes the mojo's there and you keep going and you feel dramatically different. Sometimes it's just a two, three minutes and you stop. That kind of reminds me of Seth Godin's theory and the practice where each day you show up for a few minutes, not because it's the best work you've ever done, not because you're the best in the world. It's because it's today. And that's what you do. That's your practice. You're a professional. You keep showing up and the magic of showing up every day that each day you iterate, edit, add something. It's amazing. I'll make an arbitrary number up 30 days later, what you did five, 10 minutes at a time. Is that kind of like what you're getting at? Absolutely. And I know personally for myself, I tend to be, I'm very, I have this tendency towards perfectionism and I tend to like to do it all at once, but there's there are downsides to that. It, you miss that opportunity, I think, to iterate and to have it be put out to other people to get feedback and things like that. But also when you try to do it all at once, it's so daunting. Mm. It's so daunting to just act. I completely agree with you. I think this idea of just breaking it down into small bite-sized pieces and showing up every day is really huge. And I included, that's the one episode in that series, that 13 episode series that I put together on sleep that's not really about sleep. But I wanted to put that in there because for for a lot of the teens that I see, and I'm, I'm guessing a lot of teens out there that might eventually listen to the podcast, 
it's difficult for everybody to get started on things, but when you are exhausted, it's extra difficult to get started on things. And so I can give you all these recommendations and all this information, but if you can't act on it, it's not going to be helpful. And I really wanted to put together something that would be practical and that would meet people where they were at. And that means starting small. Everyone's busy in their own world and in their particular life. Everyone feels that I have so much to do. You may not have three hours or four hours to do anything. And if you think it's going to take three, four hours, you're going to be like, I don't have time for that. And you push it off. Next thing, whatever project or or improvement you want to make, it's a year and a half later and you took zero action. But if you Mm -hmm. say, you know what, I'm going to let perfect go. And I'm just going to focus on, like you said, not the whole staircase, the next step. And it's going to be six minutes. I'm going to work on that today. And it sounds mm-hmm. laughable, but then it's six minutes, six minutes, six minutes. Then maybe for the fifth day, you do have two hours and you're on a roll and you put two hours of work in. And then getting back to what we just said, 90 days later, you're in a completely different place. It, the project has progress. You've made improvement. You're a better person than you were X amount of days ago. So there's just magic in just showing up every day. It sounds so simple, but it works. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite ways, I actually have a few of these up on my bulletin board near me. My favorite things to do is just when I've got, I always have, I have lots of ideas, things I want to follow through on, but they often will sit in my head for years. And my favorite thing that I've started to do is just setting a timer for 10 minutes and brainstorming it on a piece of paper that's draft. It can't be a fresh sheet of paper because then otherwise I get too perfectionistic. And so it has to be like a paper that I've used for something else. And I just like a paper napkin and I just jot it down really quickly. And it's amazing how much you can come up with, how many ideas you can come up with by just doing that and how everything can gel together. And then I feel like I can start breaking it down into little action pieces. But Otherwise, it would have just stayed in my head for for probably another few years if I hadn't done that. And that takes, sometimes it takes five minutes. It's unbelievable. Sometimes that idea disappears and you forget about it forever. If you don't capture it at the moment, they disappear. Thank you for covering the two-minute rule. Can you talk about the importance of your 14-hour rule and how that may help? Again, yeah, I don't think this is my rule. <laughs> I okay. heard it on your podcast. That's right. A lot of the ideas that I share in the podcast are built off ideas from people who developed a type of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. I put my own spin on things. This is how I talk to my patients about things, but they're not. I don't want to take credit for all of this information. So the 14-hour rule is based on the idea that you need enough time awake to have built up adequate biological drive for sleep. So I mentioned this earlier, but typically what happens when we're awake is that we're building up this drive. And you can think of it almost like fuel for sleep. You need enough of that drive to feel sleepy. And you also need enough of that drive to get you through that full night's sleep so have a good consolidated sleep. So 14 hours is typically the minimum. There are some exceptions. So 14 hours awake is typically the minimum. There are some exceptions, like for example, if you're physically ill, sometimes you'll be able to sleep before that. If you have a sleep disorder, some things like sleep apnea, sometimes you won't need the full 14 hours. And maybe if you've had a number of strings of really poor sleep, you may not need 14 hours to be able to have enough sleep drive for a full night's sleep. But the vast majority of the time, people need at least 14 hours. And oftentimes, it's more than that. I would say for myself, I probably need 15 or 16 hours. If you think about if you wake up at 7 o'clock, 14 hours later is 9 o'clock. Most people aren't sleepy by then. The reason why the 14-hour rule is so helpful is that oftentimes teens, adults as well, but teens are sleeping in on the weekends. Let's say on Sunday, you sleep until noon, which is not that uncommon. 14 hours after that would be 2 a.m. And so it's really 
it's a very common scenario where, where people will try to go to bed at say 10 or 11 on Sunday night with the good intention of trying to wake up on time or, or get enough sleep for school the next day. But then they just lie there for three, four hours because their body's not ready for sleep yet. So it's a quick and dirty way of avoiding that problem of showing up too early for sleep. I also see the older generation above us where as people age, I hear the average older person can't sleep through the night. Do you, from your experience, do older adults have more trouble sleeping because they're older or because they're more sedentary? What would be the reasons as people age, they can't go to bed at 10 and wake up at six and get their eight hours? Yeah, there's a bunch of different reasons. I think that one about some people are more sedentary. So definitely when you're more sedentary, when you're not as physically active, then it becomes harder to build up that drive. So I had mentioned that the time awake makes a difference, but also the amount of physical activity that you get makes a difference as well. But there are a number of other changes, right? So in older age, you've got other health issues that might also be impacting sleep, physical discomfort or pain, things like that. Sleep just also changes as you get older. So it does become, you, you have less deep sleep. It's harder to have that consolidated sleep in older age. The timing of the clock tends to advance in older adults. And you also tend to see more daytime sleep and that's something else that can impact when you have enough drive. So mm -hmm. it's very multifactorial. There are a lot of different things that impact sleep in the older age. Could you speak to some tactics uh, helping people wake up not as groggy mm -hmm. where I know here's two things. I never feel better after I do two things. I, I don't feel better about myself when I go on Twitter and I don't feel better about myself when I hit the snooze button. I leave there. I'm like, I, I was better off not doing either. It, it's just not a good experience usually for each of them. Mm -hmm. Do you speak to like the problems that hitting the snooze button? And if someone wants to be able to bounce out of bed and not be as groggy in the morning, can you give some tactics or tips? Sure. Yeah. As I have a, an episode on this, I think it's episode three on how to make waking up less painful. This episode in particular is really near and dear to me because I'm an ex-snoozer. I used to snooze up until like recently, <laughs> maybe a year ago. And then at one point I just decided to shift and I now wake up at 5.30, which is hilarious because I've always been a night owl, but now I love my early morning wake-ups. And I think partially has to do with the pandemic. I think this is now the time when I can just have quiet and be able to get work done uninterrupted. I'll speak from my own experience. Snoozing and then rushing for the day is just such a horrible way of waking up. It's just such a painful way to wake up when you already feel like you can't accomplish that first thing and then you can't get on top of your day. And that can really snowball on you. So there are a few different ways of helping yourself avoid snooze. And uh, the way that I think is quite helpful is to make sure that at least first thing in order to turn off your alarm, you have to get out of bed. It has to be harder for you to press snooze. You don't. What's going to happen when you wake up in the morning is that you wake up groggy and you're not going to be thinking about even 20 minutes from now. You're just thinking about right now and how you're exhausted and you just want more sleep. And so it's so easy just to quickly hit snooze or turn off um, your alarm phone. So I find that if you at least have that first step of getting out of bed, and then you also know exactly what you're going to do out of it. Oh, sorry. And, and then you also know exactly what you're going to do afterwards. That can be really helpful with just overcoming that initial hump of, of not pressing snooze. That's what I do. I set my phone across the room and uh, I have to rush out of bed so it doesn't wake up my husband. I turn it off. And then as soon as I do that, I have a little routine where I you know, quickly go to the bathroom and then I go downstairs. My coffee is already made. And so I just go on to autopilot right away. And so I don't really have to think about it. And oftentimes it's when you have to think about it, and that's just 
so exhausting in the morning that then you default back to what you already know to do, which is to press snooze. And then there's a bunch of ways that you can help to alert your body. We know that light and movement and shocking your senses, these are all ways of helping you combat that grogginess. So I have a few tips on that episode where I talk about making sure that you have a, a big thermos of ice cold water. If you want to make it really easy for yourself, you can prepare it the night before so that it's still cold in the morning. And then you can just chug that first thing. And that often will help with alerting you because it's cold, but also you're hydrating yourself. And oftentimes grogginess is made so much worse when you are dehydrated. A bit of movement can work wonders. It doesn't have to be anything big. It doesn't have to be a full workout, but just even doing 10 jumping jacks in one place can be helpful just with helping you to get out of that really groggy state. And then I actually think the one that makes the biggest impact is if you're doing something that really engages you. This doesn't have to be anything big as well. It can be something like watching a, a video that's really funny, or it can be listening to a fun playlist that you like, or it can be that you're waking up and you're going to be doing something really fun that day. So I actually find that's the more powerful one. Oftentimes just planning something so that you have something to look forward to in the day can be a really helpful way of jumping out of bed. The simplest tactic I stole from all the episodes for me is ice water in the morning. I would wake up and brew a cup of a French press coffee. I try to have one coffee in the morning and I switched. I do coffee like an hour later and I do a big jug of ice water like to shock the system. When I heard that has been a game changer for me because I just mm -hmm. feel more hydrated. I feel alert. I just feel better. And I've been doing it probably for the last three weeks since I listened to the episode and I do it every morning. I'm very habitual. I either do something never or I do it every day. I'm very bad showing up once or twice a week. It's either a part of my daily life or I'm just, I'm out. I started doing the ice water in a, in a thermos. It's amazing how helpful that is. Yeah, it's a good one. And I like it just because it's easy, right? Simple. It doesn't take too much so effort. Simple. And I also, I like to add a bit of salt and a bit of citrus to it. And I just find it's, people say it's more hydrating. I'm not actually sure if that's true, but I just find that it's much more pleasant. I often don't want to have a big glass of water in the morning, mm -hmm. but for some reason, adding the salt and the citrus makes it uh, easier to drink. Could you speak to a few activities that the average person, especially a teenager, can incorporate immediately into their day to sleep better? If you had to give like a maybe a sure. three to five checklist or tips. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually have a, a kind of quick start page that I'll give out to my patients. The three things that I would recommend is that the one we've already talked about a little bit is about just knowing when your body is going to be ready for sleep. So having a few quick ways that you can calculate for each night, okay, maybe I might be ready for sleep at around midnight or around one, or around 11, and knowing when that is just so that you can time your sleep with that. We talked about this a bit before, but it really can cause so many problems if you're showing up two, three hours before your body's ready for sleep. It just sets you up for a lot of unnecessary worry and frustration and often behaviors that then tend to harm sleep more. Like it's really common if you're just lying there awake and you're starting to get frustrated about not being able to sleep to pull out your phone. And then that just makes the problem so much worse. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's the number one thing that I recommend to people. The number two thing that I recommend to people is around light. So we talked about how light in the evening impacts sleep. I don't think we talked about the fact that light overnight also can really impact sleep. So it impacts quality of sleep when you can get sleepy, but also the timing of your sleep. So when you're getting too much light in the evening and as well as overnight, it pushes the clock back later. 
And so then that's setting you up even more for the first problem that I mentioned about showing up too early. Because if your clock's not ready for sleep until two and that, and you don't change, that's going to be an ongoing issue. There are some pretty simple ways of changing your light situation. And, and I like to recommend that one first because it's low hanging fruit, right? You just have to set that stuff up. It's not necessarily about learning new skills or about making huge habit change, but it can make a huge difference. The flip side to getting less light in the evening and overnight is that you also need to be getting more light during the day. So light in the morning in particular, as well as to a certain extent throughout the day is really good. It helps to anchor your clock from drifting back later. It also helps you with being more alert, feeling more alert during the day, as well as feeling better. Light we know has a positive impact on mood. Making changes to make sure you're not sitting in dim situations during the day. You can get things like light wake up alarms and stuff like that. These are all fairly Simple changes are not always easy, but they're the lower hanging fruit, I find, that you really have to get on top of your light situation and the timing of your light to be sleeping better in a consistent way. A third recommendation that I typically get people to start with is setting up another spot outside of their bed. So I mentioned the idea of setting up a really comfy spot inside your room where you can go when you're not able to sleep. And this has to do with the fact that it's very common for people who have a history of not sleeping well to develop this very negative association with their bed. So because of all this time awake in bed, as well as the fact that they're often anxious and tense in bed, the bed starts to become paired with that state of being more alert and more awake and sometimes more tense and anxious. And it's a really powerful sneaky factor that tends to drive sleep issues for people. Everything else can be perfect. The sleep hygiene can be perfect. People can be doing all the right things, but if they've got this negative association, it can continue to fuel insomnia and difficulties with being able to fall asleep, stay asleep, but also have a good quality of sleep. So luckily you can retrain yourself to reassociate bed with a place where you're more calm and you're sleepy and you can have a good quality of sleep, but that's actually very hard to do. It requires you to stay out of your bed until you're really sleepy. So you're really on the edge of sleep. If you wake up in the middle of the night, as we talked about earlier, or if you wake up towards the end of the night and it's too early, you want to get out of your bed and you really don't want to return to your bed until you're, until you're on the edge of sleep. Now, this is really challenging, especially when you're tired and all you want to do is lie in bed and sleep and, and you're hoping that you're going to be able to fall asleep again. I found it's especially challenging in teens because for teens, their bed is their place where they can have privacy, where they're comfortable, especially if you're tired. It makes sense that you're going to spend a lot more time in your bed. And so the first step is actually you need an alternative place to go and it needs to be a place that's going to be just as appealing to you as your bed because otherwise you're not going to go to it in the moment. So that's a really big one. And actually, I say that as the third tip, but that's typically the one that I find makes the biggest difference when people come back and tell me that their sleep is better. And I ask them what what made the biggest difference. Like almost universally, they always tell me that was the one that made the biggest difference. What is the most exciting project you're working on now? So my big project right now is that I'm really trying to figure out a way of helping teens with sleep so difficulties with insomnia as well as difficulties with these with body clock issues which often go hand in hand because of the fact that teens have a later running body clock and all the things that push the body clock later now i do this treatment in my in a clinical setting but i can really only help so many people because i'm seeing people one on one and i i find there's a lot of information that is fairly simple, like the type of stuff that I talk about in the podcast that I find the vast majority of people just don't know about. And so one of my one of the things that I'm really hoping to do is to get this information out there. 
And then the next step is that I want to create something where people can act on it. So where teens and their families can realistically act on the the information and the recommendations that I'm putting out there. Because especially when you're exhausted, especially when you're a teen and you've got so much else going on, it's just, it's difficult even to do the low-hanging fruit stuff. So I'm in the process of trying to build out some workshops. I'm, I'm in the process of building up my clinical um, program as well. So I'm trying to build that up now with the use of the, this 13 episode series that I've put together to really help people move forward with their sleep. And and a lot of that is about meeting people where they're at and helping them find a way forward. The other project that I, that kind of wraps into this, because I work with teens, but I'm also working with the families and parents are such a huge part of being able to help teens move forward. Oftentimes, Sleep is a huge point of contention between teens and parents. Sometimes it's about addressing that and finding a way for the teen and the parent to be able to move forward together. Sometimes it's about helping parents find a way of better supporting their teens and making these changes. But for that reason, I'm planning on doing a podcast that I'm hoping I'll launch in the fall that's more directed towards parents and other healthcare professionals around this idea of helping teens get unstuck and having a way of moving forward. I think with my background as a child and adolescent psychiatrist as well, I'm interested in a lot of other topics too that tend to interface with sleep, but are also other skills that I find teens tend to get stuck on that influence both sleep as well as everything else, mental health and and other wellness. How much does diet play into the quality sleep? Absolutely. Diet can impact sleep. Sometimes I'm seeing people who are eating right before bed and they're eating a ton of sugary foods or junk foods, and that absolutely is going to impact sleep quality. Eating too much in general right before bed tends to impact both sometimes your ability to fall asleep, but also your quality of sleep. Some people also, there's a lot of emerging circadian research that shows that eating too late as well can signal to the clock essentially to shift later. Wrapping up here, here's a fun question. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. If you could put a billboard with a quote or a motto that everyone in Toronto would drive by, what would that motto say? It would say, just get started. Doesn't matter how small it is, just get started because you can get caught in inaction for a really long time, but you can get caught in action for an entire lifetime. You just need to start with something small and without guilt, just where you're at, do the first step. I think that ties into what I do with sleep because I actually think sleep is a really great place to start for a lot of people. Even though it may seem like it, it's it's a little thing, it can make such a huge impact and it can be that first domino that gets things going and it gets you into the practice of changing things and taking action. So just get started. I think that's about as good a spot as any to end. Dr. Uwe, where can people find you if they're looking for you or find the eight online? So Find the 8 has a website, findthe8.com. And then there is also an Instagram account at Find the 8. Dr. Karui, thank you for joining us, sharing all your knowledge on sleep medicine. I think you helped a lot of people today and we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Hey everyone, it's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.